The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, well, we are starting a new series today. I'm very excited about it. Uh, it's, it's in the book of Isaiah is what we're going to be digging into. And Phil, if you can pull that slide up for me. And, uh, and this is, uh-oh. Well, it's going to be Isaiah. We can take that slide down. Uh, but but we're, uh, we're very excited to be going through Isaiah. It's, uh, it's a, a great book, and it's, it's this incredible book that, that has some very uh, important things for us to look at. But before we get into it, uh, I need to kind of set up the, the literature of the book, uh, that it's a prophetic book. Isaiah is a, a prophet, uh, which means it's prophetic literature, which what that means is that this book isn't tame. All right, it's, it's, there's, there's no real gray in Isaiah. There's no real gray in prophets. It's, everything's very extreme. And so what we're going to see is, is these two major themes come out as we read through this book. Uh, one of judgment and one of redemption. That as we dig through this book and dig into God's word here, what we're going to see is, is Isaiah's going to get in our face, he's going to get in your face, and he's going to drop the hammer on us. He's drop God's law on us say, hey, you are a mess, you don't have it together, you're making mistakes, it's, it's, it's just a, it's, everything's going, falling apart. And we'll see that on the one side. But then on the other side, we see God's redemption. We see Isaiah's going to speak some of the most beautiful and most comforting words I think ever written in human history about what God has done for us as his people. And so I'm just warning you, for the next few weeks, get ready for some, some biblical whiplash, okay? It's going to be back and forth judgment and redemption. It's these two major themes that Isaiah's going to have for us. But I also want to point out that uh, this book... It's, it's imagery and its language, prophetic language, is, is sort of weird sometimes. Like, I don't know if you caught the text. Uh, I actually, I was talking to, to one of my friends at Roasters this week, and, uh, and she's, I don't think, ever been to church or anything like that. And so she's like, what are you, what are you talking about this week? And I was explaining to her the, the, the vision that Isaiah has, and she just goes, whoa, that's really trippy. And I said, yes, she listens to a lot of the doors. Okay, so, um, and so we're, we're talking about this. And um, anyway, so, so. There's two things that I want to be sure that we have as we head into this. The first thing is this. Just know each week, this series is going to be a little bit different uh, for, for me as a, as a preacher, and then I think for you as a hearer, for those of you that are maybe used to hearing me, uh, I'm, I'm really going to be, and I, of course I always try to unpack the text as much as I can, but it's going to be even worse. It's going to be like uh, excruciating detail, okay? That's because, because this imagery is so strange, so foreign to us as, as Westerners in the 21st century, I really want us to, to fully get a picture of that and, and really dig into it. And so it'll be a little bit less stories and illustration, a little bit more textual, specific things that we'll be unpacking. So if you fall asleep easily during sermons, like bring a pillow the next few weeks, it's going to be a long haul for you, okay? So just, just get ready for that. Um, but the other thing I want you to recognize about this is that you can have great confidence in this book. You have great confidence in this book, in particular in the book of Isaiah. Uh, of course, we trust all of God's scripture as God's word here, but, but in Isaiah, we see God actually did a pretty unique thing uh, to be sure that this book was kept intact, that this message stayed through to where we're even at today. Uh, here's what I mean. In the years following World War II, uh, there was a couple of, of Bedouin shepherds that were on the, the northwest part of the Dead Sea. It's a true story. And they, they found a, a cave called Qumran. And they went into this cave. And in there they made arguably the, the greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. And they found all these ancient artifacts. And one of the artifacts they found was this big jar. And inside this big jar was a leather scroll. And, and this, this jar and this scroll made its way to uh, the, the proper people to, to look at it and check it out. And it turned out that this leather scroll was a nearly complete copy of the entire book of Isaiah from 200 B.C. 
200 BC. And you say, okay, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, up until that point, the oldest manuscript we had in Hebrew was from 1000 AD. Okay, so math here. It's a 1,200-year difference between these two, these two texts, these two manuscripts. And what happened at this time, uh, what was going on in academia at this time, is there was kind of this theory about Scripture that said, well, we can't really trust what the Bible says. We can't trust it to be reliable because what happened is over time, as people copied the words of Scripture, they changed some of them. And as people copied the words of Scripture, they, they sort of made them to fit their context and, and fudged things to make it work for them. And so the, the, the scholars of, of ancient Near Eastern language at this time were very excited because this was going to prove once and for all, we got this copy from 200 B.C., this copy from 1,080, 1,200 years between. We're going to see how much things have changed between these two manuscripts. Guess what? The exact same. Exact same. The only thing that was different was a few vowel pointings, which are really not a big deal, and a couple smudges grammatically. That's about it. 1,200 years, it's the same book and the same message. And I tell you that incredibly nerdy story for a reason. God has a message in this book. God has a message in the book of Isaiah. It's important to him, and it's important for you to hear it from him. Like God went to great lengths to preserve that message. And so have confidence in this book as we unpack it and see its truths in our lives. Now I want to do a little bit more about context in the book, and then we'll actually get into our text for today. Uh, so once again, I said Isaiah is a prophet, and uh, that's you know, a word we don't use every day. So what is a prophet? What's a prophet in the Old Testament? Well, the, the Hebrew word, there's two common Hebrew words for it. Uh, the, the nabi, which means to pour forth. Okay, so a prophet is Nabi, one who pours forth, and the Jose. Get clear your throat with that one, the Jose, uh, and, and that's seer. And the, those two words are actually very helpful for us to understand what a prophet does. A prophet is someone who sees and pours forth. So in particular, a prophet is someone who sees God's truth in a given situation and then pours forth or speaks the truth into that situation. That's what a prophet is, someone who speaks God's truth into a situation. See God's truth and speak it. And so Isaiah's situation, he's a prophet in a very hard situation. His country is divided north and south. Uh, the people of God, Israel at this time, are divided north and south. You have Israel to the north, Judah to the south. He lives in Judah. That's where he's at. He works in the, the, the king's palace. And, uh, and so that's going on. So his people are divided. Meanwhile, their enemies are surrounding them. The Assyrians have already attacked his northern, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, and they're imposing themselves. They're about to attack where, where Isaiah lives in Judah in the southern part of Israel. And so this nation is divided. The enemies are surrounding them. And Isaiah is called to speak God's truth in the midst of this. And that's the call of the prophet. Oftentimes, that's the call of the prophet to speak God's truth in difficult circumstances. So let me say this. If you're a person who oftentimes finds yourself in that place where you have to speak God's truth in a difficult circumstance, know you're in good company, okay? You're in good company. It's a good place to be. It's like what Kierkegaard said about poets. He said, what is a poet? A poet is someone who suffers tremendously. He says, but their lips are so formed that when they cry out in pain, it sounds like beautiful music to us. And he says, so we say to the poet, please suffer more, but keep your lips formed the same way. Same thing with Isaiah. Isaiah is this man who at great expense to himself will see. Great suffering to himself, at great danger to himself, chooses to speak forth God's message to his people at this time and speak it to us as well. And so the question we're going to ask this morning as we get into the text is what sort of guy does that? 
Like what creates the sort of person that has the character and fortitude and strength to speak the truth into difficult situations like that? Like, like how do you become like that? And we see in Isaiah's story, as he's called by God, we see that the way he becomes like that is that he gets a bigger perspective of God and that perspective changes his priorities and his priorities change his practice. This is what we see in Isaiah's call. A broader perspective changes your priorities and your practice. All right, ready to get into the text? Good. All right, six verse one, look with me at the first verse. It says this, hey, there it is. Has that been up there for a while? Thanks, Tanner. But now can we go to the other slide? Um, uh, six verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, so it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, now that's a line that maybe we'd skip over, because like King Uzziah, I don't know who that is, but to Isaiah's original hearers, that was a very important line. He's explaining the situation, he's, he's giving the context to what's happening to him. It'd be like if I were to say something like, on September 11th, 2001, I saw, now your mind's already somewhere else, right? You're already thinking about something else. If I just mention that date, September 11th, 2001, your mind's already going somewhere else because that date has enormous historical and emotional significance to us as a people. And so it's the same way for the people of Israel. That King Uzziah had died. He was a king who was far from perfect, but he had done much to protect them. He kept their economy spinning. He moved them forward as a nation, and now he's dead. And he dies in the midst of increasing pressure from their enemies all around. And so what happens, these people are going to know. In this year, the people of Israel are scared. They don't know what the future is going to behold. The guy who was running the show pretty well, keeping things relatively stable, is gone. And so everything's uncertain for them as they move forward. And so God gives Isaiah a vision. And what I love about the first thing that God shows Isaiah is this. It says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Sitting upon a throne. Why is that important? Because what God's saying is this. Hey, things are crazy. I get that, Israel. Things are crazy. But I'm still on the throne. I'm still in charge. I've still got things under control. Israel, I know, they're crazy. But I'm still sitting on the throne. So Isaiah's telling the people here, yes, the king died. But God's still on the throne. The Assyrians are attacking us. But our God still reigns. And there's great comfort in that, right? There's great comfort in that. Like there's some of you here who maybe have a loved one who's sick. Our God still reigns. You may have had a loved one just die. Our God still reigns. You may be fighting to keep your marriage afloat. Our God reigns. You may be fighting for the custody of your children. Our God still reigns. You might be lost and lonely. Our God still reigns. Your future may be uncertain. You don't know what's happening. You don't know what's around the next corner and things look bleak. Our God still reigns. Ebola could spread. It could get worse. Our God still reigns. There's comfort in the vastness and the greatness and the sovereignty of our God. But we see something else in this text. Not only is God in the throne, but he's high and lifted up. He's high and lifted up. And what that means is God is distinct. 
that he's, he's other, he's set apart, he's sacred, he's holy. He's holy, he's different. And that's why these next two verses, we get this crazy image, right? Look with me at verses two and three. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah sees God way up on his throne. And there's, there's seraphim, which are a kind of angel. The, the Hebrew for seraphim literally means the burning ones. Okay, So this is not like cupids, fat babies floating around. These are scary dudes uh, with six wings. Uh, two wings are used for flying, but the other two are used to cover their face. Because they can't look upon God's glory. His magnificence is too incredible for them to even look at. And then it says there's, there's two wings that cover their feet, which is a, a way of saying covering the, the bottom half of their body. And why is that? Because they want to cover themselves. They don't want to be exposed by the incredible and magnificence of the holiness of God. And so they're doing that, and they're flying around. They're constantly shouting out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you say it twice. So if you want to say something is, is really, really holy, the most holy, you'd say holy, holy. So the fact that they say it three times is them saying, listen, God's holiness, his otherness, his set-apartness is so incredible, it's beyond words. There's not enough times we could say it. That's what they're saying. His holiness is beyond words. And I think so often we think of angels, you know, like, singing holy, 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 and we think like this nice sing-songy image, right? But look at what happens, verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. All right, so this is not a pretty little song sung by fat cherubs playing harps, right? These are are weird-looking creatures shouting back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy. So much so that the foundations of the temple shake. Not the ceiling, or not the walls, not the ceilings. The foundations shake. I had a good friend growing up uh, whose family had season tickets to uh, the University of Michigan football games. Um, go blue. Or green, Cindy. Okay, thank you. Um, and, um, and, and I would get to go with him uh, once a year. I'd go to the games with him uh, at the big house, the uh, the big house is, is the Michigan football Wolverines, their largest stadium, college football stadium in the country. Seats 109,000 people, 109,901 people. I like to think I was the one. And, uh, and, it, and it sells out at that time. It sold out every game. Uh, we've fallen on hard times as a team, so it doesn't happen as much anymore. But, uh, but it used to sell out every time. And every, at every game, half the stadium yells the words, go, and the other half yells the words, blue. And it was cool enough to, to yell at myself, to yell go, but I still remember just as a kid being so excited for when the blue would, would come back because it's 54,000 people shouting the exact same words and it's just this overwhelming, surreal experience. It just constantly consumed me, but guess what? It didn't shake the foundations of the stadium. 54,000 people, one word, didn't shake the foundations of the stadium. We got these three, these creatures with, with wings shouting, holy, 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 to such a degree that the foundations of the temple are shaking. And so it's no wonder that we see Isaiah responds how he does. Look with me at verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So now catch this. Like, Isaiah's a good guy, right? Like, he's a good dude. He's part of the people of God. But then he gets just a glimpse of God's glory. He gets a glimpse of how big God is. He gets a glimpse of how holy and majestic our God is, what the greatness is. And all of a sudden, his priorities change. See, I, f- I figure Isaiah's probably going about his day, thinking I'm going to do some good, good things as I'm living my life. He gets a picture of God's glory. He gets a picture of God's holiness. And all he can think about, his top priority in life, is getting his lips clean. It's how filthy his lips are. He says, these, these lips, man, they say things that aren't always clean. They're not worthy to call God holy. They're not worthy to proclaim how great he is. He freaks out. His top priority is getting his lips cleaned. Isaiah gets a big perspective of God. And that changes his priorities. So I want to ask you, how big is your perspective of God? How big is your perspective of God? And I know that's a really pastory question to ask. Uh, but I'm a pastor, so deal with it. How big is your perspective of God? And I ask that because it has incredibly practical implications. So like, I think a, a big reason that, that we oftentimes don't feel convicted about sin in our life, or a big reason we don't sense an urgency to share the gospel, or a big reason that we view engaging a relationship with the creator of the universe as a little bit important, something I may or may not add to my life this week, is because we have such a small view of God and such a big view of ourselves. We have such a small view of God and such a big view of ourselves. I want you to ask yourself that question. Do I have a big self and a small God? Is my life kind of about what I want, what I want to do, what my desires are, where I'm headed, what I think is best for me? I've got it figured out. I'm going to do it. If God wants to come along, he can. That's okay. I'm not opposed to him. Or is it about a big God and a small self? Where are you at with that? When your perspective of God is big, your priorities will shift. When you get who he is, when you get a glimpse of his glory, your priorities will shift. It's like going to a concert. Uh, a few years ago, I went to a, a Sufjan Stevens concert. Anyone? Fans? There we go. Way to go. Hey, Glenn. Wait, you're hip, man. Uh, and uh, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a singer-songwriter. And he's actually, I, I like him, but he's not like my favorite style of music. I generally like things fast and loud. And, uh, and he's the opposite of that. But uh, so I went and then I had a bunch of work to do and I got free tickets from a buddy. So I was just going to go and then just kind of drift towards the back and, and take care of some work. But I went and I remember like the second Sufjan took the stage, this like screen with all these cool lights went on and there's all this art in the background. He had like dancers and two drummers and, and it was like the most incredible concert I'd ever seen. Like two seconds into his performance, I didn't think about work at all. I didn't think about the stuff that I had to do at all. I was just fully encompassed in the zone. My priorities had totally shifted. Have you ever experienced that, like at a concert or something like that? Right? Hey, two guys in the back. Excellent. When you encounter something that is awesome, it just blows everything else away. When you encounter something that's awe-inspiring, it reshifts your entire priorities. And so it's the same thing. If you gain a big perspective of God, there's going to be an inherent humility that's going to come into your life. If you gain a big perspective of God, there's going to be an inherent humility as you stand before him. 
I think for a lot of people, this happens in nature. Right? I hear, oh, Pastor, sorry, I couldn't make it Sunday, but I feel more connected to God in, in nature than I do at church. I actually get that, right? I get that. I mean, I still think you should be here, but I get it. Um, I remember I was in high school, and I was driving back from a mission trip in Mexico in Baja, California, and, and we'd just gone north of, of the border, and we were in the San Jacinto Mountains in, in Southern California, and our youth leader pulled over, and it was like 15 high school kids, and we went out, and we just started worshiping for a half an hour, and the, the stars were out. It was night. We're in front of this mountain, and, and I remember my buddy Nate, uh, who's this guy. Uh, everyone has this friend, right? He was like good at everything right, good at, like, he's good looking, he's funny, he's athletic, he's better at the acoustic guitar than I am, like, like, he's the guy that if you're a guy, honestly, you hate, right, gentlemen, right, like, you know that guy, like, the dude who's like, oh, I've never done this before, oh, I happen to be an expert, you know, like, you just, oh, come on, man, right, I remember this guy, he's excelled at everything, was just this awesome dude, 17 years old, and we're standing out here in the stars in front of the mountains worshiping God, and he just fell on his face, fell on his face for half an hour, 17-year-old kid, because he was blown away by the awe of God. See, if you get a taste of God's glory and of his greatness, your priorities shift. We say for Isaiah, his first priority in life, his number one priority now is getting clean, is getting pure, is being healed. And we see that God actually takes care of that. Look with me at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. All right, so we have these heavenly creatures, the seraphim, these heavenly messengers of God. And one of them takes a burning coal from the altar. And we say, well, what altar? Where did this come from? All right, well, Isaiah is in the temple. And the altar in the temple would have been the altar of sacrifice. It's incredibly important for us to understand that from the beginning of the relationship of God's people with him, of Israel and God, they had a sacrificial system because they couldn't go to God, to a holy and glorious God, uh, as broken and sinful and unclean people that they needed to be cleansed. And so they had the sacrificial system where they'd, they'd kill animals on this altar. And these animals would pay the price for the sins of the people. These animals would atone For the sins of the people. They'd take the place of the people. And that way the people could gain access to God. And so we see for Isaiah that God makes him pure. God heals his lips with a coal from the altar of sacrifice. Healing comes from the altar of sacrifice. Healing comes from the altar of sacrifice. The infinite becomes intimate in this moment. The infinite The God of all gods, the majestic God, high and lifted up on the throne, sends his holy messenger to heal this man of unclean lips. The infinite becomes intimate and it changes everything for Isaiah. So I want to ask you, do you get that? Has that happened for you? Like, do you see that the infinite God has become intimate for you? Like, this is the message of Christianity. Like, this is the gospel That the all-holy, glorious creator God of the universe who is seated on the throne, who reigns now and always, actually came into this world as a baby, as a human being, as a person of Jesus Christ. That the infinite became intimate in the person of Jesus Christ. 
that Jesus went to the cross. That he threw himself on the altar of sacrifice to make you pure. To atone for your sins now and always. To bring healing to you. Because healing comes from the altar of sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus made himself your eternal sacrifice. And because of that, your guilt is taken away. Because of that, your sin is atoned for. Like, do you get that? Like, is that, that true for you? Is that deep in your being that that's a reality you live in? That that's a hope for you? See, insofar as the greatness of God is in your perspective, it's going to shift your priority to see your need for Jesus. Let me say that again. Insofar as the greatness of God is in your perspective, how big he is, it's going to show you how much you need Jesus. And as you receive that, as you receive his forgiveness, as you receive his grace, it's actually going to change your practice. Your perspective, your priorities, and then your practice change. And this is what we see with Isaiah. Look with me at verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. So Isaiah gains a big perspective of God. His priorities shift. His sins atone for. And now he's sent out on God's mission. And the same is true for each of you. That if you'd be humbled at the greatness of God, you watch your priorities shift and your sins atoned for by your Savior Jesus at the cross, you'll then see your practices change as you're sent out on God's mission. So I read an article, as I close here, I read an article on Slate.com this week called In Medicine We Trust, and here's the subtitle, I love it. Uh, Should we worry that so many of the doctors treating Ebola in Africa are missionaries? The article was written by a guy who's, uh, who's an atheist, uh, and there's no sense of irony in his subtitle. Like, he was very serious. Like, should we be worried about this? Like, these guys are all Christians. It's very odd. And, uh, and so, so I read this article, and, uh, and he starts it off by talking about how he was at a, a meeting in Austria with a bunch of academics and medical experts, and they're talking about uh, how they're going to control this thing and what they can do to contain it. And, and someone finally spoke up and said, hey, listen, the only people who are actually doing any work on the ground is the organization Doctors Without Borders. Uh, and, and that's a great organization, but the guy goes on to say, he says, actually, that wasn't true. And this is what he says. The statement was probably intended as a jibe at the World Health Organization and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but it slighted another group by omission, missionaries. Missionary doctors and nurses are stationed throughout Africa in rural outposts and urban slums. Rather than parachuting in during crises, like some international medicine specialist, A large number of them have undertaken long-term commitments to address the health problems of poor Africans. He goes on. And yet, for secular Americans, it may be difficult to shake a bit of discomfort with the situation. Our historic ambivalence toward missionary medicine has crystallized into suspicion over the past several decades. I love this line. It's great that these people are doing God's work, but do they have to talk about him so much? And then the, the author then compares uh, missionaries to how Western corporations try to get into the developing world and, and gain a profit from, from these countries. Uh, and then he says this, but there's one big difference between missionaries and Western merchants. The missionaries don't profit personally from their work. They are compensated very poorly, if at all. Many risk their lives. How many people would risk death to spread the gospel of Western consumer goods gratis? The Ebola crisis and the role missionaries are playing in it has brought dislike of missionary work out into the open. 
when an infected American missionary was flown back to the United States for treatment, Donald Trump griped that do-gooders trying to save Africa should be prepared to suffer the consequences. Anne Colter called the doctor idiotic and asked of his mission to Africa, what was the point? I don't know about you, but I love this article. Like, I love it. Like, on the ground floor of this epidemic, the first responders are the people of God. And like, this guy doesn't get it. What's the point? Why are they doing that? What is this about? I'm so confused. This whole article is, he just doesn't get that these people would lay their lives down for other people. But see, we know why. Because there are people who've encountered a God who is great and holy and magnificent and they've been humbled by him. And there are people who've been cleansed and atoned for by their Savior Jesus and so they know they're taken care of. And so they say, here I am, send me. Off they go on his mission. Now, of course, we're not all called to go to Liberia. In fact, I'd argue I don't think any of us are. If I went there, it'd just be a mess, right? But my prayer for you this morning is that you would encounter the greatness of God in such a way that it would, it would shift your priorities to see your need for Jesus as your Savior. And that as you experience his grace and his forgiveness in your life, that you'd be sent out on his mission, whatever that looks like for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for my friends who are gathered here this morning. Thanks for your prophet Isaiah who spoke these words, who told us about how you called him. God, it's a weird story. It's trippy. It's not something we're used to. But God, you're not something we're used to. You're holy, you're other, but yet you choose to become intimate to us. You choose to make yourself known to us, and for that we are grateful. God, may we live into that truth. May we experience the grace of our Lord Jesus, and may we be sent out on his mission. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.